we continue with the fourth and final segment of Justice Sotomayor's dissenting opinion in 303 Creative, The Ellenus, beginning with Part 2, Section C of the Opinion. Section C. The court reaches the wrong answer in this case because it asks the wrong questions. The question is not whether the company's products include elements of speech. They do. The question is not even whether CAUTA would require the company to create and sell speech, notwithstanding the owner's sincere objection to doing so, if the company chooses to offer such speech to the public. It would. These questions do not resolve the First Amendment inquiry any more than they did in FAIR. Instead, the proper focus is on the character of state action and its relationship to expression. Because Colorado seeks to apply CAUTA only to the refusal to provide same-sex couples the full and equal enjoyment of the company's publicly available services so that the company's speech is only compelled if, and to the extent, the company chooses to offer such speech to the public, any burden on speech is plainly incidental to a content-neutral regulation of conduct. The majority attempts to distinguish this clear-holding of FAIR by suggesting that the compelled speech in FAIR was incidental because it was logistical. For example, the U.S. Army recruiter will meet interested students in room 123 at 11 a.m. This attempt fails twice over. First, the law schools in FAIR alleged that the Solomon Amendment required them to create and disseminate speech propagating the military's message, which they deeply objected to, and to include military speakers in on- and off-campus forums. The majority simply skips over the court's key reasoning for why any speech compulsion was nevertheless incidental to the amendment's regulation of conduct. It would occur only if and to the extent the regulated entity provided such speech to others. Likewise, in O'Brien, the reason the burden on O'Brien's expression was incidental was not because his message was factual or uncontroversial. O'Brien burned his draft card to send a political message, and the burden on his expression was substantial. Still, the burden was incidental because it was ancillary to a regulation that did not aim at expression. Second, the majority completely ignores the categorical nature of the exemption claimed by petitioners. Petitioners maintain, as they have throughout this litigation, that they will refuse to create any wedding website for a same-sex couple. Even an announcement of the time and place of a wedding, similar to the majority's example from FAIR, abridges petitioners' freedom of speech, they claim, because the announcement of the wedding itself is a concept that Smith believes to be false. Indeed, petitioners here concede that if a same-sex couple came across an opposite-sex wedding website created by the company and requested an identical website with only the names and date of the wedding changed, petitioners would refuse. That is status-based discrimination, 
plain and simple. Oblivious to this fact, the majority insists that petitioners discriminate based on message, not status. The company, says the majority, will not sell same-sex wedding websites to anyone. It will sell only opposite-sex wedding websites. That is its service. Petitioners, however, cannot define their service as opposite-sex wedding websites any more than a hotel can recast its services as whites-only lodgings. To allow a business open to the public to define the expressive quality of its goods or services to exclude a protected group would nullify public accommodations laws. It would mean that a large retail store could sell passport photos for white people. The majority protests that Smith will gladly sell her goods and services to anyone, including same-sex couples. She just will not sell websites for same-sex weddings. Apparently, a gay or lesbian couple might buy a wedding website for their straight friends. This logic would be amusing if it were not so embarrassing. I suppose the Heart of Atlanta Motel could have argued that black people may still rent rooms for their white friends. Smith answers that she will sell other websites for gay or lesbian clients. But then she, like Ollie McClung, who would serve black people takeout but not table service, discriminates against LGBT people by offering them a limited menu. This is plain to see for all who do not look the other way. The majority, however, analogizes this case to Hurley and Boy Scouts of America v. Dale. The law schools in Fair likewise relied on Hurley and Dale to argue that the Solomon Amendment violated their free speech rights. Fair confirmed, however, that a neutral regulation of conduct imposes an incidental burden on speech when the regulation grants a right of equal access that requires the regulated party to provide speech only if, and to the extent, it provides such speech for others. Hurley and Dale, by contrast, involved peculiar applications of public accommodations laws, not to the act of discriminating in the provision of publicly available goods by clearly commercial entities, but rather to private, non-profit, expressive associations in ways that directly burdened speech. The court in Hurley and Dale stressed that the speech burdens in those cases were not incidental to prohibitions on status-based discrimination because the associations did not assert that mere acceptance of a member from a particular group would impair the association's message. Here, the opposite is true. 303 Creative LLC is a clearly commercial entity. The company comes under the regulation of CADA only if it sells services to the public, and only if it denies the equal enjoyment of such services because of sexual orientation. The state confirms that the company is free to include or not to include any message in whatever services it chooses to offer, and the company confirms that it plans to engage in status-based discrimination. Therefore, any burden on the company's expression is incidental to the state's content-neutral regulation 
of commercial conduct. Frustrated by this inescapable logic, the majority dials up the rhetoric, asserting that Colorado seeks to compel the company's speech in order to excise certain ideas or viewpoints from the public dialogue. The state's very purpose in seeking to apply its law, in the majority's view, is the coercive elimination of dissenting ideas about marriage. That is an astonishing view of the law. It is contrary to the fact that a law requiring public-facing businesses to accept all comers is textbook viewpoint neutral, contrary to the fact that the Accommodation Clause and the state's application of it here allows Smith to include in her company's goods and services whatever dissenting views about marriage she wants, and contrary to this court's clear holdings that the purpose of a public accommodations law as applied to the Commercial Act of Discrimination in the sale of publicly available goods and services is to ensure equal access to and equal dignity in the public marketplace. So it is dispiriting to read the majority suggest that this case resembles West Virginia Board of Education v. Barnett, 1943. A content-neutral equal access policy is a far cry from a mandate to endorse a pledge chosen by the government. This court has said it trivializes the freedom protected in Barnett to equate the two. Requiring Smith's company to abide by a law against invidious discrimination in commercial sales to the public does not conscript her into espousing the government's message. It does not invade her sphere of intellect or violate her constitutional right to differ. All it does is require her to stick to her bargain. The owner who hangs a shingle and offers her services to the public cannot retreat from the promise of open service. To do so is to offer the public marked money. It is to convey the promise of a free and open society, and then take the prize away from the despised few. Part 3 Today is a sad day in American constitutional law and in the lives of LGBT people the Supreme Court of the United States declares that a particular kind of business, though open to the public, has a constitutional right to refuse to serve members of a protected class. The court does so for the first time in its history. By issuing this new license to discriminate in a case brought by a company that seeks to deny same-sex couples the full and equal enjoyment of its services, the immediate symbolic effect of the decision is to mark gays and lesbians for second-class status. In this way, the decision itself inflicts a kind of stigmatic harm, on top of any harm caused by denials of service. The opinion of the court is, quite literally, a notice that reads, Some services may be denied to same-sex couples. The truth is, these affronts and denials are intensely human and personal. Sometimes they may harm the physical body, but always they strike at the root of the human spirit, at the very core of human dignity. 
To see how, imagine a same-sex couple browses the public market with their child. The market could be online or in a shopping mall. Some stores sell products that are customized and expressive. The family sees a notice announcing that services will be refused for same-sex weddings. What message does that send? It sends the message that we live in a society with social castes. It says to the child of the same-sex couple that their parents' relationship is not equal to others. And it reminds LGBT people of a painful feeling that they know all too well. There are some public places where they can be themselves, and some where they cannot. Ask any LGBT person and you will learn just how often they are forced to navigate life in this way. They must ask themselves, if I reveal my identity to this co-worker or to this shopkeeper, will they treat me the same way? If I hold the hand of my partner in this setting, will someone stare at me, harass me, or even hurt me? It is an awful way to live. Freedom from this way of life is the very object of a law that declares all members of the public are entitled to inhabit public spaces on equal terms. This case cannot be understood outside of the context in which it arises. In that context, the outcome is even more distressing. The LGBT rights movement has made historic strides, and I am proud of the role this court recently played in that history. Today, however, we are taking steps backward. A slew of anti-LGBT laws have been passed in some parts of the country, raising the specter of a bare desire to harm a politically unpopular group. This is especially unnerving when for centuries there have been powerful voices to condemn this small minority. In this pivotal moment, the court had an opportunity to reaffirm its commitment to equality on behalf of all members of society, including LGBT people. It does not do so. Although the consequences of today's decision might be most pressing for the LGBT community, the decision's logic cannot be limited to discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity. The decision threatens to balkanize the market and to allow the exclusion of other groups from many services. A website designer could equally refuse to create a wedding website for an interracial couple, for example. How quickly we forget that opposition to interracial marriage was often because Almighty God did not intend for the races to mix. See Loving v. Virginia, 1967. Yet the reason for discrimination need not even be religious, as this case arises under the Free Speech Clause. A stationer could refuse to sell a birth announcement for a disabled couple because she opposes their having a child. A large retail store could reserve its family portrait services for traditional families, and so on. Wedding websites, birth announcements, family portraits, epitaphs. 
These are not just words and images. They are the most profound moments in a human's life. They are the moments that give that life personal and cultural meaning. You already heard the story of Bob and Jack, the elderly gay couple forced to find a funeral home more than an hour away. Now hear the story of Cynthia and Sherry, a lesbian couple of 13 years until Cynthia died from cancer at age 35. When Cynthia was diagnosed, she drew up a will which authorized Sherry to make burial arrangements. Cynthia had asked Sherry to include an inscription on her headstone, listing the relationships that were important to her, for example, daughter, granddaughter, sister, and aunt. After Cynthia died, the cemetery was willing to include those words, but not the words that described Cynthia's relationship to Sherry. Beloved Life Partner There are many such stories, too many to tell here. And after today, too many to come. I fear that the symbolic damage of the court's opinion is done. But that does not mean that we are powerless in the face of the decision. The meaning of our Constitution is found not in any law volume, but in the spirit of the people who live under it. Every business owner in America has a choice whether to live out the values in the Constitution. Make no mistake, invidious discrimination is not one of them. Discrimination in any form and in any degree has no justifiable part whatever in our democratic way of life. It is unattractive in any setting, but it is utterly revolting among a free people who have embraced the principles set forth in the Constitution of the United States. The unattractive lesson of the majority opinion is this. What is mine is mine, and what's yours is yours. The lesson of the history of public accommodations laws is altogether different. It is that in a free and democratic society, there can be no social castes. And for that to be true, it must be true in the public market. For the promise of freedom is an empty one if the government is powerless to assure that a dollar in the hands of one person will purchase the same thing as a dollar in the hands of another. Because the court today retreats from that promise, I dissent. <laughs> We've come to the end of the opinion. Until next episode, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.